The Pinball Network is online. Launching The Plum. Hello, strangers. I know it's been kind of a while. Um, I was on a little bit of a hiatus, a summer long hiatus, if you will. Now I'm back and um, I'm ready to get to it. Uh, so let's get into it. is everyone doing? I hope you're doing well. I hope you're taking care of yourselves. It's been a little bit of a rough, uh, a rough time of things. And uh, I'm glad to see that so many of you are still playing pinball, be it virtually or physically uh, in your own homes and safely in other places. It's been like kind of a hot and cold news cycle for pinball. It's been very strange because you know, there was no Pinberg. There was no shows, which was very, very sad for me. Um, <laughs> and um, obviously, this month has been a, a pretty huge month. September and October both have been pretty huge for pinball news with Deep Root and uh, Guns N' Roses being announced. And of course, Avengers Infinity Quest, uh, Keith Owens' third game. I think that's right. Third? Yeah. Yeah, it's his third game. <laughs> So so that's been pretty exciting. It kind of uh it's kind of nice to see people continuing to work really hard in in the industry during these really really tough times. Um it's been pretty scary and I'll try and spare you too much covid talk just because it's honestly just exhausting. We hear it every day. Uh so yeah. I will not go into that too much. I want to talk a little bit about my trip to San Antonio, which um I think some of you know about. There was quite a few of us who were selected to go and take a tour of the Deep Root Factory in San Antonio, Texas. We were invited by Robert Mueller, who is the principal of Deep Root, to come down and, and check out the factory and see what Raza looked like. So this was back in September, and there was me, Lauren Gray of the Backbox Pinball Podcast. There was Jeff Patterson from This Week in Pinball. There was Chris Chandler, who is the Deep Root correspondent for uh, the Pinball Show, <laughs> and Carrie Hardy, Carrie Hardy's Pinball, and then Colin McAlpine, or Colin McAlpine, who is a competitive pinball player. Now, I've already kind of done a rundown of the visit with Lauren Gray on her podcast, on the Backbox Pinball podcast, and, and that's mostly what I have to say about it. There's been a couple of things I've heard about online uh, from, like, Pinside, I'm not going on Pinside, but I've been hearing secondhand from people that some people have been calling us shills, um, that we've been paid off or, or what have you. And, and I can see how that kind of looks. It's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And, and I implore you, if, if you've had this thought about the six of us, uh, we jokingly call ourselves the deep six, <laughs> to, to try and put yourselves in our shoes because we had to sign an NDA. So we're a little bit limited in what we can go into and, and how much we can disclose. So we're sort of left with only the positives. So I'm not saying, you know, I don't know. Like I said, everything that I could say on, on the Backbox Pinball podcast, and I do genu genuinely mean what I said, and um, I believe that everyone else who is in the group also believes what they've said. Um, I will say one thing about that trip. Uh, it was incredibly refreshing to see all of those pinheads. And I mean, I was only meeting Carrie Hardy and Chris Chandler for the first time on that trip. And it was just really nice to be able to hang out with other pinheads. It, it almost felt like we were we had our own like mini show, which was really nice, especially because I miss I miss shows so much and, and seeing everybody and and talking to other pinheads and, and experiencing something really special like like what we did see at Deep Root. So Anyways, if you want to listen to that podcast, you could find it um, on Lauren's page. It's the Backbox Pinball Podcast. I'll, I'll post the links in the show notes. And um, yeah, that's that's about all I have to say about that. My special guest today is Mike Vinicor. He works at Stern Pinball, and he has worked on such titles as Stranger Things, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He worked on The Beatles. Um, he's had his hand in many different pots when it comes to working on pinball and software. He also leads the field test program at Stern, so he goes out to all these arcades uh, when he can, when 
things are normal times, and he gets a whole bunch of information to learn about what will make pinball better for us. Uh, he's a very old friend of mine. We've spent a little bit of time working shows together at the show circuit when that was happening last year, and um, I knew him from coming to Logan Arcade to get information from our from our games. So without further ado, here he is. I do editing. I'm actually kind of nervous because this is the first time I've done an interview since like June. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I'm just kind of like, oh, what if I, what if I forget? What if I'm rusty? You know, yeah. like. It's like riding a bike, Krista. It'll come back to you quickly. That's what Marco said. We had, he had to give me a little pep talk before I left work today. It was just yeah. like, he's like, you know, you're a natural. It'll be fine. So who are you? <laughs> my name, my name is Mike Vinicor and I'm a associate game developer at Stern Pinball where I've worked for just shy of four years now. This January will be my four-year anniversary. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a fun and hard-working four years, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. I love it there. I, I must have met you right when you started because because I believe you started coming to Logan Arcade pretty much at the start of, of when you started working for Stern. Is that right? Yeah, I think within the first month, like I took my first trip down there on behalf of Stern. Like I had been there a couple of times prior, just, you know, as a friend of Zespi's, but but yeah, on an official capacity, it was within a month. I was making like regular trips down there. Yeah, that's because uh, I remember Jim Sherd was doing basically what you were doing, which is uh, field. Uh, what do you, what's the official name? Like field the, testing? Yeah, field test program. Like that. That's one of the many hats I wear. And they didn't have a guy in, or, or a gal or anybody in charge of that. So it kind of just fell on Jim's lap because he lived fairly close to Logan Arcade. He had a lot of experience with that sort of thing in the past when we worked at Williams. So then he happily gave it up to me when they made that officially part of my job. What did doing field test stuff uh, entail? I mean, I know you can't really talk about a whole lot because there's you know information that you gather basically from doing these field tests. But can you talk a little bit about that? The field test thing is not is like been part of the game business, the coin operated game business for way longer than I've been in it, you know, certainly dating back to the early eighties, if not more. So we, we will place games at certain locations, like our new games to, you know, to track how well they earn, uh, you know, to work out any software, hardware issues perhaps. And, uh, you know, just to get feedback from people too. And then we'll use that as we're developing because oftentimes when we ship a game, the software is not quite finished. So we can make adjustments to things based on player feedback that we get when our games go on test. Do you think that in the future things will be a little bit different as far as the field? I mean, I know that COVID obviously is is changing the way that arcades are running right now, but with stuff like, you know, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth being enabled and, and pins, do you think that that's going to change things significantly for you? Like, is the field test program basically just not going to exist because you're going to be able to do stuff remotely? No, it'll always exist in some way, but it will definitely evolve. Like, certainly when the games get to the point where they're online, it will not require me to physically go someplace to dump audits or have the operator, if it's like a, a remote operator from another state, you know, dump sure. the audits and email them to me. Like we'll be able to download them at some point in the future over the internet. So it will make that part of it a lot easier. Um, yeah. Right. A lot less travel. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's evolved over the years where, you know, so I did, this at Williams Valley Midway in the 90s, the last position I had there was running their field test program, both for video and pinball. And back then, there was, the internet was new. There weren't, there weren't smartphones with cameras in them. So you mm -hmm. could put a game on a local, local test site. Like we would do it like a couple of months before we go into production. So like we'd put our prototypes out there. And then the only people that got to see them were like locals. There was no people posting pictures on the internet five minutes later. So you can't hide your new games anymore at remote test sites because of hmm. technology. So now like we don't put the games on test until they go into production. Unfortunately, you know, like if we put a new title out before we announced it and did our full reveal, like the people would know about it It'd be all over the world online and on, you know, like enthusiast pinball sites and whatnot, like within minutes. It must have been really exciting to be able to like, to be able to do that, to see people's reactions when, when you'd put a game out like that on the floor um, you know, versus just basically having the surprise kind of ruined, like, like you say, with the internet and pictures and stuff like that. It, it was a lot of fun. I'll tell you, like, back then at the old place, my Friday nights were often spent 
setting up a test game at one of our many test sites. I had over a dozen of regular stuff in the Chicago area. Um, you know, that included the suburbs that we would set up games at. So often my Friday nights would be going from one or more places while the, our truck driver would drop these games off and then I'd have to set them all up. And then I would sit around there for hours and watch people play it so I could see people's reaction and see if they're excited about it and see what they liked about it. So most of my Friday nights when I had that position were spent in arcades and bars. It's something I really appreciate about you, uh, not only just as like what you do, but just knowing you as and you being my friend is is your history with being in an arcade and, and being at the arcade all the time and working in the arcade. And if I'm not mistaken, basically that's kind of what helped you get a job at Midway. Am I am I right there? Sort of. I mean, when I got hired at Midway Games, that time Williams Ballet Midway was all one company. Later on in my career there, Midway spun off and became a separate entity from WMS Gaming. But when Mm -hmm. I started, WMS owned it all. I did work in an arcade. It was in Downers Grove. It was one block away from my house. It was called Just Games. And I actually spent my entire childhood there. My cousin was the manager there when I was a kid. So, I mean, I really did live there. I was working there. And then I met a guy at a punk rock show um, who was wearing a Mortal Kombat shirt. And I was a huge, huge Mortal Kombat fan. And I, and I was a very shy person, but I was so amazed that somebody had a Mortal Kombat shirt. I wanted to know where he got it because I wanted one. So I ran up to this perfect stranger and I said, where did you get that shirt? I want it. And he's like, well, I work at Midway Games. And you know, I didn't believe him. I'm like, get out of here. He goes, no, look. And he pulls out his business card and he shows it to me. His name was Bill Dabblestein. So I told him, you know, I'm like one of the best Mortal Kombat players you'll probably ever meet. And like, I work at an arcade and I love games. If you ever need like a game tester, I would love to do that. And, you know, like, and I promise you, I would do a good job. And and he said, coincidentally, I'm working on a project that's going to need some testing very soon. Give me your number and I'll give you a call when we're ready. And I had no thoughts that of him ever calling me. I thought he was just being polite and he was going to throw away my number. And to hmm. his credit, a month, not even a month later, it was a few weeks later, I get this phone call from him. He goes, hey, this is Bill. Do you still want to come test our game? We're ready. And I said, absolutely. And he goes, all right, bring two people with you because it's a three-player game. And here's the date and the address. And we'll see you then. Just ask for us at the where the guard is at the front door. And that's how my career started was because of that guy. That's terrific. I love that. I love that the, the whole punk aspect kind of sort of tied into that as well because you... I mean, I don't know how many LPs you have, but you're you're always posting on your Instagram just, I would say maybe five times a day, at least one LP. Oh, yeah. Um, That's like my every evening. Uh, listen, I spend the last couple hours of my night listening to records before I go to sleep. Now, you worked on a punk compilation. Is that correct? Well, so I in the punk rock days of my youth, I had a fanzine that I started called Spontaneous Combustion that I did for, it was like, 10 or no it was like 13 years i did it and then it also became like a record label so i've put out like a, have done seven records now they're all seven inch records and then before that i did a compilation cassette back when i was still in high school where i got all these different bands to give me music from all over the u.s i didn't know how to press a record at the time and nor did i have the money but cassettes were cheap and easy to make and so i did that back then and pretty much every good thing that happened in my life like both personally and professionally came as a result of like punk rock music and my love, the hobby of collecting records and my love of music. So my whole career is owed to a bull weevil show. I went to at Wrigley side where I met Bill, you know, every good thing that's ever happened to me has been a result of that path that started with music. No wonder you love it so much. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like I said, like, you know, people say like music saved my life, like music gave me a life. Like I had no, idea what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't have any career goals. I was just kind of skating by, like trying to figure it all out. And then like my life was set down this course thanks to a chance meeting at a concert. It's kismet, some people will say, I think. Absolutely. And I'll always be grateful for that and to Bill. And every time I ever see Bill, he lives in Portland now, I make it a point to call him and take him out to dinner and treat for dinner every year when I go there, when I was going to that Portland show, you know, with Marco. To, and mm. I always make sure I tell him how much I appreciate what he did for me all those years ago. How, how many, how many LPs do you think you have? Um, do you have a, do you have an actual like exact count? Yeah. You know what? I just answered this question to one of my best friends the other day via text and I did the math and I don't remember the exact math now. It was th- around 13,400 maybe records. That's LPs in seven inches, but it's like, 75 25 with lps 
being the big, the bigger chunk. So there's like 8,000 something LPs and like 3,000 something seven inches. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. I've been collecting records since most, my entire life. Really. I started buying records in grade school. I would get a dollar allowance every Friday and I would go to Kmart and buy a 45 of some song I liked off the radio. But when I got it, like when I got into like fifth and sixth grade, that's when I really got into like buying records big time. Like whatever my favorite bands were at that time, I would buy everything from. So if back then it was like cheap trick and ACDC. And then sure. when I discovered punk rock in seventh grade, my whole world changed. And then I just went completely nuts and became like a hardcore record collector. So that was around age 12. And then uh, I've been collecting records nonstop for the past 38 years. Are you ever going to stop? Absolutely not. Like I will. <laughs> when you're, when, my, when you're I, dead. Yeah, when I'm dead. And then I'll figure out how to come back and continue my work. So like <laughs> I got to find a place to put all this stuff like in a truss so I can come back for it when I reanimate. <laughs> So so where do you keep them all? Because you, you also have pinball, right? You've got about nine or eight pinball machines. I have uh, 18 pinball machines, I think. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. All right. So I live in a fairly good sized house. It's like a four bedroom house. And okay. the, the, all the games are in the basement. It's a pretty good sized basement, you know, and every square inch of it is full. You know, there's no wall space. It's games surrounding every, the entire perimeter, plus like some in the middle of the room because it's like one big room one little room and then the unfinished side that's got like the utilities and stuff in there, you know, and then the records, like we don't have a dining room in our house. The the dining room is the record room. And then the adjoining living room has like three big record shelves in it too. And when I run out of room with that, it's either like I'm going to have to get divorced or really hardcore (laughs) negotiate with my wife to get her to sign off on letting me add more shelves in here because she already thinks it's too much but she knew what she was getting into marrying a a record collector and we've known each other since we were teenagers so it's not she knows what's up (laughs) yeah i mean she knew what she was getting into but i i think that she really believed at some point i would be done and i don't know what ever gave that idea because it certainly didn't come from me Hmm. what's uh what's your grail lp right now God, there's so many, but right now my most wanted record, just for the sake of being done and having completion, my favorite band on earth is Skinny Puppy. And I -hmm. I have every variation of every record from every country that ever came out in. So like I might have six or seven copies of one of their albums because they all came in different from different countries. I'm only missing one to complete the whole discography. And that's the Australian pressing of their album called Vivisex Six, which is also my favorite one of theirs. Like I've been searching for that thing for years and I have not come across one. So if anybody out there is in Australia, they can find me that one. Um, the Australian pressing of Skinny Puppy Vivisex Six, I will pay a hefty ransom for it all right australians out there yeah I will make it well, yeah i will make it well <laughs> worth your while but there's tons and unfortunately some of the most rarest punk rock records i still don't own are prohibitively expensive with in today's secondary market like i can't sure. afford to pay many thousands of dollars for like a, the first necros and the first fixed singles which i've been looking for for my entire life like i can't justify spending that kind of money if i had 10 grand to spend I'd be mm. doing some home improvements. I wouldn't buy one, you know, 45 from a punk rock band, no matter how much I love it, you know? Yeah. And first pressings get really, really expensive too. Like yeah. If, you, if you're being specific and want like a first pressing, like I know uh, as far as I'm concerned, my record collecting, I just want to have the records, you know, I don't care if it's a repressing from last week. I'm I'm still going to buy it just because I, I want to have it. But um, the one record that I want, I, if I find it, it, I think it's like, 60 bucks and that's even expensive for me i'm like yeah. which record well, if i find it i'd spend it yeah what record is so it? so it's a, a band called jonathan richmond well it's the modern lovers okay i know um, them. i have but, one i have one of their yeah. records i have yep. the one with the so circle on it yeah yeah that's like the classic one with roadrunner on it yeah yeah and so the one that i want is called uh modern lovers 88 and it's a very it's a very sweet record like it's very summery and sweet and like acoustical and it's just a really lovely record it's it's up there it's pretty much one of my top five records but i've never found it on vinyl anywhere and uh, the one time i saw it listed online i think it was like 70 or 90 bucks damn yeah when the world goes back to normal and i'm back out on the road visiting record stores i'll keep an eye open for you for sure oh thanks mike i appreciate that the the most i ever spent on a record i've spent the same money twice and it was 550 bucks um and those were super big deal purchases for me that's not something i would do 
in all my life, I've only done it twice. You know, you know, I've thrown, I've spent up to a hundred bucks on records constantly for rare punk stuff. You know, once it gets much over that, it's I have to really want it and be in a good financial state where I've got a bunch of liquid money. You know, for me, it's like I can always make more money somehow, but like. I want the records more than I want the money because I can't take the money with me. I can't really sure. pick the records with me, but I'll figure out a way. Yeah. Well, and at least they make you happy, you know? Yeah, for sure. It's like, yep. it's been like my therapy my whole life. It's just been buying records, I think. Yep. I, I totally see that. And I, I agree. So I bet I bet you kind of miss shows a little bit for that because uh, traveling for shows gave you an opportunity to go to the record stores in all the cities that <sighs> uh, that we would visit. Yeah, big time. Like one of the best parts other than the good food on the road and seeing you guys was when I would I would fly out, you know, the, the on setup day, but I'd fly out early enough to give myself like half a day of record shopping and I'd hit up all the used record shops in town that I could find. Um, be, you know, and then when I'm done with that, then I'd usually meet up with you guys to set up the booth. So mm. uh, that was like the best perk of the jo- of the gig, you know. I really miss all of that, the traveling and the pinball shows and the record shopping for sure. But, you know, mm. it's it's helped my bank account because I spent so much money last year when we were all doing that. Like I needed to take a break from all that, that kind of heavy amount of shopping to recharge the coffers, you know. And now lately, because like my birthday's coming up, like I tend to go crazy this month buying myself nice things, mostly records, you know, like as a treat to myself for my birthday. So I've been kind of overextending myself just shopping online these days. So we haven't we haven't been to shows like like I mentioned before. Are you working from home right now? Yeah. So um, our factory is reopened once the the state got to the safe enough level where they can with big modifications to the you know, how people are spaced out and whatnot. Uh, they mm-hmm. were able to reopen, but us in like design and product development, like we're all still working remotely and we will be probably for foreseeable future for sure until sure. basically until probably a vaccine comes up. I can't really say for sure, but the way of it's course. looking now, that's looking how it's going to be. So I've been working from home basically since the end of February. It, we, we adapted very well. Like technology these days, like with things like Zoom, has made it mm-hmm. way easier to do this than even a couple of years ago. That would have been a much harder task. You know, we're still cranking away and working our butts off to make these games for everybody. And and thankfully, you know, like I said, the technology has made it possible to do it as seamlessly as, as humanly possible without being in the same room. There are some struggles for sure, especially when you're on a new project and then like it's tough on the programmers when they can't have the mechanical engineer in there to fix their whitewoods and they have to like drop things off and pick it up, you know, things like that. So there are definitely challenges, but I'd say that we're doing a pretty good job. I'm not going to lie. Like my commute certainly got better. Like I went from a 15 mile drive, which really was nothing. It was like 25 minutes. It was very easy, but now my commute is two flights of stairs. I could start work at the same time, but sleep an hour later, and I only have to travel down, you know, about 25 steps to get to my to my home office in my basement. So, but I do miss everybody. You know, we have a really good team and it's tough not being there because there's, you miss the camaraderie and then like, you know, being able to go into the pro, like a programmer's office I'm working with to like bounce ideas back and forth for game rules with them or show them things I found, you know, things like that. It's harder to do remotely for sure. Sure. Yeah, I totally understand that. It's um, a big challenge. The last project that you worked on was, or the last title rather that you worked on was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Is that right? Yeah, well, I so I still part of my job and it's right now it's the meat and potatoes of my job more than it mm-hmm. has been in a while is like, you know, doing game testing. I've been testing Avengers as well, but I've had like Avengers, was, you know, some games I have some input with rules and some games I don't. And it depends on the needs of the team and the lead. So like mm-hmm. a game like Stranger Things, I was actually like one third of the design team. And then Turtles, I had a little bit of input, but like Avengers, I had no input because Keith just does it all himself. He doesn't need me, that's for sure. Um, he's got it all figured out. He's It's amazing, you know, <laughs> the stuff he comes up with. So my role on Avengers was strictly like testing the game. And it's a fantastic game. I've, you know, I get paid to play that thing all day long, which is pretty amazing. You know, I'm juggling between that and like, we're still doing updates to Stranger Things. We're still got an update coming for Elvira. Um, so I'm still working on games that are, have updates plus new stuff, you know, so I'm constantly juggling projects, even remotely, you know, I just have to go pick up equipment every now and then, like I got to go in and get more play fields. Yeah, it's never less than two projects at a time. Often it's three or four. If there's if there's one thing I've learned about the pinball industry within at least the last year, it's that there's never just one pinball. Just like you said, there's never just one pinball 
that someone's working on. There's, you know, you're going to have your hand in a whole bunch of different pots trying to make one thing better or another. I guess it depends on if you're a designer or in software, but definitely for software, I know there's there's multiple things. Yeah. Um, so like the leads will be on a project from start to finish. So it'll be on the same game for like a year and a half or more. And then, mm-hmm. but the support programmers will bounce from project to project. So, you know, there's like a big group of them that will, they'll touch lots of titles in a year. And then like the art team will certainly, they work on everything. So um, those guys and gals are working on, you know, every title and multiple titles at once. They've got it the hardest of all, because they've got it to create so much artwork now for the screen and they have to do it for so many titles a year. It's like, they're never slow. Like those guys are constantly going full speed all day long, you know, working long hours. And then like, for me, like, because I work on every project too, and the nature of my job is I'm constantly juggling it. And sometimes it gets tough because things won't line up quite so nicely. So it's tough to split my time between two Mm. projects that both really need a lot of attention. So that will present its share of challenges, but you know, we, we and I do the best we can. Are you going to have your own title coming out soon? Um, no. I mean, some my, my long-term goal is to design a game for Stern. That's, of all the things in this game industry I've wanted to do, like if you had a bucket list, that's the mm. only thing left to check off the list. It's like I, I did video game design for almost 10 years. I was a video game tester. I did other stuff in the industry. I got my dream to work in pinball for the last many years. Um, my last item that I want to do before I leave this planet someday is I do want to design a game and I want to design it for Stern because I love being there and I'm I'm proud to be a member of that team. So like I want to hopefully make a fun game for people and for the company, just like I help others make the fun games. Now I couldn't ask for a better group of people to learn from as well. You know, I try to soak it in like a sponge. Like I'm always trying to help in places outside of my jurisdiction just so I can learn more, you know, because like I want to like I said, someday I want to do that. Would you say you have a mentor over at Stern? I mean, I feel kind of funny asking a, a grown man if he has a mentor. No, no but... that's, a, that's a totally valid question. I would say most of them, they all have different things to bring to the table and, and they, they have their own methods. Like the way George designs a game is different from the way Steve or John or Brian Eddy would design a game. So honestly, like I look up to all of them as far as you know all of our playfield designers because they've all of them have made so many games that I love playing it and many of which I have in my home and then on the software end you know all the leads I've learned so much from them too just in the time I've been working there and some of them I've worked with in other companies like I worked with Lyman and George and Dwight like in the past you know at Williams and Midway so I look up to all of them like I have a huge respect for all those guys and I've learned a lot from guys like Lonnie who I didn't know until I came to Stern and he's been making pinball machines longer than anybody as far as programming them. He's He's been working at uh, Stern the entire run of the company as it's through all the iterations back when it started at Data East. So he helped start that company. And I've learned a considerable amount of stuff from him that, you know, because he's got this wealth of knowledge that's gone out like 30 something years. Excited to see what else you have in store and, and what else you're working on, Mike, because it's always it's always such a pleasure to talk to you at shows. And I, I do miss, you know, going to shows and seeing you there. And you just bring such a positive light to the scene and to, uh, to the community. And you're awesome. And I miss you. <laughs> Thank you. I miss you, too. I'll tell you, like, it's hard not to be positive. Uh, but when you're talking about pinball games, because they're inter- they're amusement devices, they're meant to be fun. They're supposed to make you smile. It's, you know, it's really easy for me to go out in public, and I'm a very shy person in general. The fact that I've become like a public speaker is like a big change in my life. But it's really easy to talk about something that makes you happy and that you're passionate about. Like I couldn't go up there and talk to you about a book I read and do a very good job, but I could talk about games or music all day long, you know. I, I do really enjoy like meeting the public and these are the people that play our games and they buy our games, you know, and I love being able to meet them and answer their questions and just talk to them about games. Cause I share their same passion. Like I've been playing games for since, since I was able to reach flipper buttons on a pinball machine, you know, in my early grade school years. So when you were at Midway, what games did you work on exclusively and which games did you enjoy working on the most? Um, okay. So the game that got me wanting to work at that particular company was Mortal Kombat. Like I was so obsessed with that game and I was one of the best Mortal Kombat 2 players anywhere in the Chicago area for certain. I mean, I never traveled at that time 
anywhere else, but I imagine I probably had to be one of the best players in the world at that time. That's what made me want to work there and, and made me like led to my career. But what, the first project I ever worked on there was a game called Revolution X. That was the Aerosmith video game. Um, it was okay. Like a, it was a shooting game. It was pretty fun. I liked it, especially at the time, you know? So that was the first project I worked on. And then the second project I worked on was Mortal Kombat 3. And that was probably the my favorite project when I was a game t- video game tester and analyst. That one meant the most to me. Um, I had the best, the most fun playing on that project and the and the ultimate update. So I worked on those two, but I worked on every game starting with Revolution X up until I left the game testing side, the QA side. I think right after Carnival came out, <clears throat> somewhere around then, Carnival and maybe Blitz 99 were my last titles that I worked on as a game tester. And then I moved over to assist the the guy running the field test department and then take it over when he got promoted and moved to the San Diego, the San Diego office uh, to work on the console side of the business. And then I became the field test guy. Then they hired somebody to be my assistant. So all those games in between. So it was like revolution X, all the mortal Kombat games starting with number three through number four, plus the home versions and the various updates like open ice, hang time, maximum hang time, blitz, Carnival, Cruisin' World, uh, Hyperdrive, and I'm sure there's probably a half dozen more I'm forgetting. So it was it was arcade as well as like home console. It was yeah, it was mostly arcade, but uh, short, not too long. Within the first couple of years, they stopped farming out the home, the console side of the thing. They used to like license them to places like Acclaim to do the home versions of like Mortal Kombat, and then mm-hmm. they started doing it themselves. But we didn't do that in house. We had like outside developers do them for us but it was like they worked for us so uh mark guidarelli actually was one of those people he worked on the home versions of mortal kombat 3 while we were working on the arcade one so like you know he and i go way back so you guys oh i was gonna say you guys worked together back then too yep so he worked on the home side and then he came and moved to chicago he lived in california at the time he moved to chicago to come work on the uh, uh arcade side with us and he worked on like the sports games and whatnot uh, when he moved here and some various other projects. So Mark and I have worked at three companies together. Now we worked at Midway games. We worked at studio Higante, which we made uh, Xbox games. He worked there for, uh, I think maybe the first six months I was there maybe. And then he moved to Calif- back to California. Um, and then when he came to work at Stern, that was the third place, the third company we've now worked at in the game business together. That's awesome. I feel like that's that's so rare to see two people move across three different businesses, but stay in the same industry. That's that's really cool and special. I guess pinball is, is kind of like that where people kind of jump around, you know, especially because the iterations of different pinball companies have sort of been uh, singular or uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Oh, gosh, you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, just it's a very small niche thing for sure that the game industry as a whole is is surprisingly very small like especially when you go into the guys like us that you know came up through like coin operated games it's a it's a very small industry where everybody knows everybody regardless of where they what company they're at you know because like because it was just that small but when you boil it down now to just pinball it's even smaller especially now you know back in the height of coin op you know there were half dozen pinball companies maybe or so I guess we've got, we've almost at that again. If you think about it, of people cranking out regular games, but we're the only ones at Stern cranking like multiple titles a year. You know, like all the other guys are doing like maybe one a year, and we're doing multiples. So, um, but back in the heyday, like every company was cranking out three or four new titles a year. Now, I want to ask. I'm not sure if you were with the company at this point, but uh, do you remember when NBA Jam came out and how crazy that was? Because that's something that I wish that I could have seen just, you know, as a as a grown as a grown woman who who loves the arcade scene and, and all that stuff. Was it really pretty, pretty crazy? So when I worked when NBA Jam and Mortal Kombat 2 came out, that's when I worked at Just Games. So it was it was right before basically my career at Midway Games started. You know, that's what led to it for those games, especially Mortal Kombat. Those games printed money. At just games, we had th- we had th- we had three Mortal Kombat twos that got nonstop two player player from open to close every day, and then we had one NBA Jam that got played nonstop all day long, usually by multiple players. You know, it was rarely a one player game; it was usually like two to four players. I was actually surprised that they didn't buy a second one at NBA Jam because it made that much money. You know, 
we would run out of tokens. Like we used to do our collections every Friday and midway through the week, we'd have to start doing a second collection because we the changer would run out of tokens for the week because <laughs> people were buy, playing that many games at the time. And it wasn't just our arcade. It was like that at every arcade. It must have been really cool to see. What exactly was it about Mortal Kombat that, that drew you so much to it? You know what? I'll tell you, like when Mortal Kombat first, the first one, Mortal Kombat 1 came to just games, I like I wasn't really that into fighting games at all at that point i'm like they're okay but you know i'm into like the other games more and i still played pinball too i played it all but i'll tell you what attracted me to the game was i was watching a friend of mine who used to come to the arcade a lot who just lived around the corner from me he was playing it and i watched him do sub-zero's fatality and i never i didn't even know that those things existed in the game because i literally never paid any attention to this thing i'm like oh wow it's just like pit fighter with way better graphics like i don't really care but when I saw this fatality where the dude ripped off like the guy's head and held it up, I'm like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I want to do that. So like I put, <laughs> I put in my two tokens and I started trying to figure out how to play this game. And there's like all these secret moves and stuff. I, I had to learn all that shit. And I dumped a ton of money into these games trying to learn them all. I played it. And then I just got hooked. I was playing it every single day. And then I also got way into Street Fighter too, but not to the same obsessiveness as I was into the Mortal Kombat games. Like, Mortal Kombat was my fighting game. Did you do any uh, tournaments or anything like that? I ran one at just games, but I didn't enter it because I didn't think it was fair for me to enter my own tournament. And there were some mm-hmm. really great players that probably one or two of them, these two brothers, Russ and Randy, probably would have beat me. They were that good. I didn't. I never really entered any because th- there weren't too many going on and I, and I never would find out about them until it was too late. But I would always challenge people like, there was one time at just games where, like I said, people were there all day long and especially on a Sunday when they gave out 10 tokens for a buck. So like I was on that thing and my record was I had a, like 105 wins. I had to, I was running late. Like I had to be somewhere. So I had to quit playing like and walk away from the game. Like I would have been on there till the, till the place closed. Like I just couldn't be beat that day. Do you have a, do you have a Mortal Kombat cab in your house too? I do. So one of the uh, great treasures from my career was I was given a Mortal Kombat 3 machine by the company because I worked on it and Ed Boone like he's the one that went to management and said I want these guys to have games these guys being myself and Eddie Ferrier who was the other tester we were a tag team I can't remember if Eddie actually got his game or he decided he didn't want it because he lived in an apartment with his folks and it was a small apartment so I don't remember if he actually ever got his game or he passed on it but I was so excited. I'm like, I can't believe I'm going to have a Mortal Kombat game in my house. You know, for the longest time I had it set up in my living room because my basement was getting refinished. You know, now it's in the basement. Like, I don't even know the last time I turned it on, but I've turned down every offer to sell it because the sentimental value is worth, will always be worth all the space that it takes up. I think when we're done here, you should go downstairs and play a game for, yeah, right, for my sake. Right now it's like, it's not even set up. It's like, in that storage room where the utilities are, oh, you know? like yeah. I had it in the small room and that's my wife's side of the basement where she's got her treadmill and her exercise equipment. So mm-hmm. like she hated having the Mortal Kombat in there. So I moved it out for her. So she'd have that whole room to be hers. So it, right now it's sitting next to my shadow that like is on its way out the door when COVID's over and the guy that's buying it could finish paying for it and arrange to have it picked up. So I can't play it. Unfortunately, the game room is full. Like I have more games than space at this point. I have this outstanding project to do to it where I bought like the multi-jama gimmick, you know, and I have all four Mortal Kombat arcade boards, you know, that I got from when I worked there. And I want to multi-Mortal Kombat it so I don't have to physically swap boards and I can Mm -hmm. play any of the four, you know, just by like a menu or whatever. I've had most of the components to do that. And I'm waiting for my buddy George to be able to safely come over again someday and help me actually wire it all up. You know, I've had these components now for a few years. I've just been sitting there on the to-do list. So do you have any plans for, uh, I know that there's going to be like a virtual expo. Are you going to do a, a an M&M? That's what you call the M&M. Oh, the M&M Mark? show. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we haven't been asked to, so I'm going to guess no, but okay. I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure that Stern will likely have some sort of representation there. I'm honestly okay. like out of the loop just enough that I don't know what, what, if anything <laughs> we're doing for it, to be honest with you. I didn't even sure, know I have... that virtual expo was a thing until last week. 
Yeah, I didn't really pay much attention to it until recently. I, I think I saw one of my buddies is doing like a homebrew kind of thing. And um, that was when I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about Expo. I, I'm a little bit nervous for the state of shows in the future, but hopefully at some point they can be back to normal again. So we can hang out in the booth like the good old days, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, I don't have a I have a friend that's a, a doctor and I was talking to him this morning and he didn't leave me with much high hopes that next year is going to be any better as far as like concerts coming back or public big public gatherings so i'm hoping for the best obviously because i want life for everybody to go back to normal i want us to all be able to do these things again but you know again i wait till it's safe hopefully it's sooner rather than later i did do virtual cax brian eddie and i did a behind the scenes of stranger things presentation for that that was fun but it's a lot more fun to do it in person in front of an actual audience Sure. Yeah. You get the vibe of the room and everything like that. Is that available online to watch? Do you know? It should be. Yeah. I think they put it up on YouTube or Twitch or something because all of it okay. you know, was pre-recorded and then they aired it all. Like they did the event over the course of a weekend, you know, and then we were in like the chat room to be able to answer people's questions while they were watching the video that we had pre-recorded. So I'm sure it's got to be up there. Cool. I'll, I'll see if I can find a link. And, and if so, I'll post it in the in the show notes for sure. Okay. But... Yeah, my, my head gets cut off in it. Like for whatever reason, the, when they edited the video, like the cropping or something was off. So you only see like the bottom half of my face. <laughs> <laughs> Just, this is uh, Brian Eddie and half of Mike. Yeah, <laughs> Brian Eddie and Mike from the nose to the chin, basically. You know? <laughs> it's so funny. I mentioned before I was like so nervous. I'm like, oh, this is my first industry quote unquote interview because because the only other interviews I've really done have been, you know, like everyday pinball people. And my boss was like, it's it's Mike. He's your friend. I was like, yeah. yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, doing like I, I would imagine like doing this with me has got to be way easier than like somebody like a Steve Ritchie or a George or somebody that you don't really know that well, you know. So I, I mean, it's easier to it's the comfort level is a lot higher. Oh, for sure. Yeah, all the pauses are like okay, that's fine. Just, yeah, you yeah. know. Let- I used to do band interviews, you know, like when I did a fanzine, and it was they always made me nervous because like in every case that interviews were happening with people i i loved their music but i've never met them or talked to them before you know usually i handled it pretty well and they were pretty easy going but i'll tell you the one time i was a little starstruck and this was only over the phone that this interview happened was when i got to interview one of the members of skinny puppy because i was obsessed with that band and to this day they're still my favorite band in the world and that will never change Mm. but the fact that i got to interview one of them on the phone was like such a huge deal to me and at the time i was like 19 years old that's the one time i could distinctly remember being nervous like yeah yeah on edge i think i'm trying to think if there is a if there's like a pinball person i mean george's is a little intimidating just on his own just because he has a very like powerful presence he's very sure of himself he's very confident he's very you know he's just so 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 smart and um he does so many things and uh, i think i would be nervous to interview george but not you know, starstruck. He's. I think that if you get a chance to do that, you'll, it'll go surprisingly easier than you think because he's such a good talker and and easy yeah. to have a conversation with. Like mm-hmm. that. I think that like your like any nervousness would go away pretty quickly because he's a great presenter and a great talk. Yeah, his video, his most recent video was awesome. I was so like surprised to see it and uh, and really pleased with it. It just it was really well done and very straightforward. Like he presented the information and in, in a really easy to understand way. It was great. I was so happy to see that. He is such an amazing history and career. Like he's he's made some of my favorite games, even in video. Like he made the Tron video game. Like. He was the designer yeah. of that. That's one of my favorite games ever. You know, and he made Spy, yeah. he made Spy Hunter, which again was a game I played the shit out of when I was a kid. So I mean, he's got such great stories, and I've got such a I've got such a huge respect for him of all the things he's done in this industry. And he's so smart, and he knows all these different different facets of the business, like you know, like from mechanical engineering side to game yeah. design to every like he just can he can do pretty much everything. Like he's a hell yeah. of, he's a hell of a yeah. talent. Well, and that's well, that's the other thing about this, you know, about this show, about this podcast is that, and I mean, obviously, you know, I talk to you a lot about you know, like your punk stuff, and yeah. you know, a little bit more about Midway than necessarily pinball. Yeah. But like, that's kind of what I want to do is I want to talk to people, pinball people, about like their other hobbies. Yeah, um, to me, so that, like, that that's the more interesting stuff most of the time. Like, because you could hear a guy like me talk about my career at Stern like a million times a year, you know, but like. You don't get to sure. necessarily get get to hear about the other things in my life, which other people would find interesting. You know, like you know, like the music and like 
punk rock and like concert photography and stuff. I love talking about all that kind of stuff too. You know, I've got, I've got a story for just about everything. That's amazing. I could talk to you about photography and professional wrestling. Uh, You know, I was the head yearbook photographer, right? I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, it's something that I think it's just because we're whenever we're at shows or whenever we're like talking, we're always talking about pinball. So it's just never really come up. And I mean, I know that you've talked to me about your photography before, but I, I wanted to be a photographer. It's what I started to go to school for. And then I just couldn't couldn't handle the competition. So it kind of ruined it for me a little bit. I, I ended up being an intern for a wedding photographer and it made me absolutely miserable. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, I've turned down every offer to be hired to do wedding photography for people because it's outside of my comfort zone and it's just a stress I don't want in my life, you know? Oh, yep. Absolutely. It got to a point where I was like, I just want to do this for me. If I do this for work, it's going to ruin it. I don't know how pinball is different for me because, you know, obviously pinball was originally a hobby and then I started working at the arcade and it was like, okay, well now it's my job and now it's even more so my job. Yeah. In a way, like I think that it's the hobby has dwindled down a little bit for me. Like I'm less inclined to play as much as I used to, but I still love it. That's kind of a risk. I think when you, when you get to have like your hobby be your job, it's oh, um, for sure. Like I've got 17 or 18 games in the basement, you know, and mm-hmm. I'd never ever go down there and play them unless I have a group of friends over that want to hang out and play games. But like, yeah. I, I won't absolutely will not go down there and play games anymore. Not that I don't enjoy pinball. I still love it as much as ever, but I'm around it all day long for work. So if I'm down there playing something in the basement, it's during work hours and I'm working on whatever project I'm working on. The last thing I want to do after coming, after being in, in the office all day around pinball is come home and play pinball. I, you know, I've got so many other things I want to do. Like, you know, listen to music or exercise or go shoot, you know, photos at a concert or hang out with friends or, you know, there's so many other things to do. So that does happen when, when your hobby becomes your career, then like you tend to not spend hobbyist time outside of your work time as much as you used to by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. And I see that. And I, I know that just shortly before I got the job with Marco, when Tim Sexton had started working over there, you know, I, I had asked him, I was like, why aren't you coming out to tournaments? He's like, man, I do this all day. He's like, and plus, you know, Logan is kind of a hike and all that stuff. I was like, okay, all right, I get it, I guess. And then it happened to me and I was like, ah, I do get it. Yeah. I mean, I've honestly lately been considering like, you know what, these games like aren't, not that I don't like them, but I'm not using them. I'm just like, I've got all this money sitting in my basement. If I sell them that I could put to like buying new windows for my house that need to be replaced, you know, and doing any other number of things, mostly home improvements. I look at all those games and I'm like, if I sell a bunch of these, I could get all this work done in the house that I've always wanted to get done in the house or that I've been putting off or the, because I won't stop buying records. So I can't save money. Oh, so, so now like when the pandemic finally ends someday, I, th- I really think I'm going to downsize considerably. Like maybe I'll sell four or five of the games to start with. When I went on vacation, uh, I went on a brief, on a brief vacation. I went out to Tennessee to visit a, a friend and, you know, we were doing mostly outside stuff because it was safe to do so uh, rather than being anywhere else. And um, I rented a stand up paddle board and we went out on a, on a quarry and I said, Oh, this is just great. I absolutely love this. It was an amazing workout. It was really beautiful. When I got home, I said, I want to stand a paddle board. I want to get one of these things. And I, I looked at my Galaxy, my my Stern Galaxy, the pinball that I have. And I was like, oh, if I sell it, I could start saving for a battle board. Yeah. And making that, making that decision is hard. It really is. But, uh, you know, like you said, in the end, it's like, really, you have to weigh how much time you're spending playing yeah. these, these things that are basically just paperweights. <laughs> yeah, that's when. I, so the la- I, I didn't sell any games for like 20 years almost you know very rare exceptions and if i sold a game it was just to get a different game and then um when i started like i think i was working shortly before i worked at jjp or when i was working at jjp i started selling off a couple of games that were like well i need money for like to get a new driveway or to get this fix in the house yeah if i and I, so and i'm not playing these games like i can count the amount of money the games i've played on one hand this whole like the whole past year you know it's like so do I want $6,000 or do I want a game I play once a year? So like I yeah. sold, I, started, I sold like a bunch of games. I sold like Scared Stiff. I sold my Indiana Jones. I sold my Twilight Zone, you know, all for like ridiculous profit over what, you know, I sold them all for like 
double what they cost when they were new in the box. And I didn't buy them new in the box. I got them dirt cheap when I worked at Williams, you know, like used. And then when I started working at Stern, when I wanted to buy a game from work, I would sell a game to make the money I needed to buy the game from work. You know, I didn't even buy one last year and I, pr- I won't buy one this year either because I have to sell something to do it. But then I'm like, well, if I sell something, I don't want another game I'm not going to play because I've already played all the games a million times by the time they come out. I'd rather just sell them, free up some space and then put that money into the house. I get the little, the eyes, the eyes bigger than wallet osis, you know, where I'm looking just out of curiosity at Craigslist or eBay at pins. And I'm like, Ooh, there's a jungle queen for sale, you know, up in Virginia. I could drive up there and get, it's like, no, don't do it. <laughs> just don't. You know, uh, Nikki green, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, so she just bought uh what's that? It's that hockey themed game. sespi has got one too. It's from Gottlieb. Um, oh, uh, ice fever. fever. So she just bought one that this guy local to me, to, to us, like he's just like in Bolingbrook. He was selling one and it was like, I think he was asking 800 bucks. And I figured, I, I honestly thought like, man, if I had the space for one more game, I would buy that <laughs> game. But I tried to talk him down to like 600 bucks or something, you know, but if I could get it for that, <laughs> I would buy it. Cause it's, a, I like those old Gottliebs and I've, I had no space. So I didn't, it didn't go beyond that brief blip of a thought but she ended up buying it from him and i was so excited that she bought it because someday when the coronavirus is over then i could just go play it at her place you know so and plus plus i'm glad that a friend of mine who loves pinball got that got a game you know i was happy for her so um i was just texting him the other day when i saw her post that she got it i'm like did you buy that from that dude jeremy she goes yeah and i got it a lot cheaper than he was asking for and i'm like that's so awesome because i actually entertained the thought of wanting it if i had any space that's perfect. She goes, well, when the world's safe again, you're coming over to play it. I'm like, you got it. <laughs> I do. I do love seeing the the number of people who have been renting and even buying games who wouldn't normally like. There's been a few people who have been like, oh, I'd never rent a game or I'd never buy a game, and lo and behold, because of the pandemic, they've been like buying and renting, and it's just like, wow, cool. Well, there you go. You know, when this whole thing started, like we had no idea as a company, like what's going to happen? Like, is the business going to go, is it going to tank, you know? Cause like people are going to not work and they're not going to buy stuff. So while the location market dried up largely, you know, because so few things are even now are open, the home market like just kept growing. Like, cause people are <laughs> stuck at home. So like, well, fuck it. I can't go play pinball anymore. I'll just buy one. So um, like, you know, the demand is like crazy high for our all of our games which is fantastic because you know it's keeping us all employed but yeah it was, it was scary nobody could have predicted what was going to happen either way and thankfully yep. it went to the it was something positive of like well sales went up i know that we we had a lot of guys calling up who were basically taking the blankets off their pinball machines in the basement just like well i got nothing else better to do so i guess i better work on this old pinball machine and and calling us up asking for parts and stuff which was which was really kind of delightful oh god yeah i had to imagine the part sales have to have gone up too like you said i'm stuck at home i may as well work on these projects i've been neglecting yeah, it's been fun. It's been a fun experience to talk to them because a lot of them just have no idea. They're like, "Oh, you know, it's it's been down here. I don't know. I figured I I figured I work on it." And uh, getting to talk to those guys and and teach them along the way, basically as we talk on the phone, like, "Oh, did you know if you, you know, if you get this, you can get this. You can clean it up. You can make it look good." And there's another pinball machine that's just like this that you might like. Like it's it's been great. It's made for really great conversations. Yeah, you know, it's I used to really enjoy like fixing my games and like shopping them out and, you know, restoring them. And now like, I don't have any interest in doing that sort of thing anymore. It used to be very therapeutic for me. And now it's just like a daunting task that like, oh, I got no motivation to do this. Like, I don't want to do it. So if my games break, they usually will sit there broken for like years. Yeah. Galaxy is still sitting basically. I mean, I'm not sure. I think I need to do something stupid, simple, like the, like the flipper, the flipper rebuild and, um, Something's up with the one of the sound cables, the ribbon cable. I don't know. Um, and I just I haven't even bothered. It's been sitting there, and it's like I could I could do it, but I don't know. Just haven't bothered. Not yet. I will. Yeah, I, I was doing a playfield swap on my Medusa, and like I got it like so far. You know, this is going back like two years now. I got it like part, you know, like most of the way there, and then the completely lost the wind came out of my sails and i just lost any motivation to finish it like a year went by without even me touching it and then like some like pieces fell apart and i couldn't find and figure out how they went back together and 
eventually I'm like, I'm never going to finish this and I don't want to leave it in pieces. So I paid John Peterson to finish it for me. And then he did and I've got it back, but like I haven't played a single game on it because it still needs some various tweaking of like some switches and stuff to get him working right. And like, I just can't be bothered with it. So it's like, I did all this work and then I paid somebody to finish the rest of it. And then I like, <laughs> still not a hundred percent. And like, I just can't be bothered to even turn it on. Like right now the oh, glass no. is off of it. And like, I've got a kiss topper sitting on top of it. So you can't even play it anyway. <laughs> Cause like the kiss topper from the game can't go on the top of my game. Cause my ceilings are too low. So I have to take any toppers off. So, cause I brought a kiss LE home from work, you know, like a year ago. And I'm like, well, this topper has got to come off because it won't fit. So it's sitting on the Medusa that's just like out of service. And it's going to be that way for for years, probably. I don't know. Like I used to be excited to like go down there and fix that stuff and always stay on top of it. And now like, I just don't want to do any of it. Like it's just too much work for me. It's like not fun anymore. If you're going to have anybody do a, a play field for you, it would be John Peterson. Oh, that guy does amazing work. And he's such yep. a nice guy on top of it all, oh. you know total sweetheart he is like he's he's a wonderful man he yeah his his collection is just insanely beautiful because he restored all those games the the first time i was invited well i think it was like the first and last time that i was invited to his place i remember going down there and it it had been the first time i had seen multiple ems and wood rails i had never seen a wood rail before before that point in one space Uh, i think there was like 60 of them or something like that and the the sound of all of them uh, it was like the the ultimate ASMR it was just i <laughs> i remember leaving i remember leaving that place and being so relaxed oh it's the best i i hope i hope i can make it there again one day it, it's such a treat like anytime he invites people over like to go there and you know and he plays in our league and so he'll host one of the sessions you know and it's usually my yeah. favorite one because it's just like you know, most people have similar collections of modern games, you know, myself included. I only have a couple old games, only one EM, and I've got a couple early solid states, and the rest are all like either 90s Williams games or new Stearns. And then, uh, but, you know, to have that many beautiful, classic, great playing EMs in one place is such a treat. I've, the, only place I've, <laughs> the only place I've seen more in one place was that Pinball Hall of Fame in Banning. Until that, until I went there, like John's house was by and large the most EMs I've ever seen in one place ever. I have I have yet to make it to to that part of California for a California show. I know that Banning and I think there's there's another pinball museum I think in California. Maybe I'm mistaken or I might be thinking of of Las Vegas probably. Yeah, there's the one in but, Vegas um, where, which I've never been to, but I went to Banning once cuz mm-hmm. Marco, you know, and us did that show there 2 years ago. Not we did it in 2018. I think. Or was it 19? Cuz it was a we only hmm. had like 10 games there and they were in a separate room. It was like the easiest show to do because it wasn't like any other pinball show. We mostly just got to hang out and play games, but that place was incredible. I'm like, Oh my God, this is like, I've died and gone to game heaven. Cause not only did they have all the pins, they had a whole separate part of the building that was all video games and they had like hundreds of those. Oh really? Yeah. It was, it was incredible, you know? So it's just like, man, this is like, this is the mecca of games anywhere in the world. Like, there's, this has got to be the greatest place to see games anywhere. Huh. That sounds awesome. Wow. Yeah. So I highly recommend when the world's back to normal, going there for something, you know. Like, I was bummed when we didn't do it the last year because I'm like, man, that place was so cool. But from a business sense, it it didn't make any sense to, to do that that show. Like, didn't make good financial sense, you know. Like, just like this year, we weren't going to do that Portland show again because... Which was a bummer because I liked it, but from a business sense, again, pinball is such a yeah. a minuscule part of that show. It wasn't financially worth the the time. You know, it wasn't worth it financially to go. Do you know if uh, I, I'm I'm imagining? Well, because it's October now, so I guess IAPA is probably canceled, huh? I think I was told that it was already canceled. I believe. Yeah. So okay. somebody just told me that the other day, and I don't know if that's a hundred percent true, but I imagine it is because that's January, and there's no way the world's going back to normal by that soon i'm i'm sad to miss uh were you you weren't at the florida show last year were you no no like because that was uh like that's not like gary goes to that thing yeah uh, and john john was there yeah and it's not like a marco show so um yeah yeah but gary and john go because it piggybacks on like one of those industry shows too yeah so, so yeah. they always yeah that which is why those guys always end up going to that Florida thing. 
That's why Wayson was there too. Oh yeah. That's yeah, right. Yeah, Wayson, Wayson ended up too. going. Yeah, because we, we all hung out for, for a spell. That's a fun show. I was I was pleasantly surprised with that show. And I was like, if if it were possible for Marco to do more shows, which which I don't think it is, that would be one I would want to add because it was it was good fun. It has the potential to be an even better show, I think. Yeah, I, I, I mean, for me, the more the merrier for shows. But, you know, I understand from a business standpoint, like it doesn't make sense to do that many. And then also the more shows there are, the, the more heat I get from people in my department for being gone so much. That's just the way it works. Like I'm out there trying to help promote the products, the game. Yeah. And like it was asked for me by upper management to do this. So George signed off on it. This is what I got. I got to do this as well. Like I got to You got to be able to manage me being gone for a few days at a time. There was a time like last year that I was gone for the entire month of July because oh, like all these events stacked up. They just went back to back to back to back. So each of them were like three or four days, you know? So it was like, I was just flying. Like I went from like Atlanta. It was like Atlanta to Comic-Con. So in San Diego and then Houston, Houston was in the fall. So it was, I did, I did Atlanta. Oh, Cali extreme. Yes, that was it. So I did Atlanta. Yeah, Cali Extreme. I did, yeah, I did Atlanta. I did Comic-Con. Then it was California. Then I was home for like one day. Then I went to California, California yeah. Extreme. And then I came home, pa- repacked a bag, and the next morning left for the X Games for a week. So, um, oh, my God. Because we brought pinball to the X Games last year. That was a lot of fun. I'm trying to remember last year. I feel like there we might have overlapped with that because I remember we did a show and you were like, well, I'm going to see you next week. Yeah. You're like, yeah. I'll see you next Friday. And I wish I could remember which which overlap it was. It was probably Atlanta and... Probably California Extreme or something. It was it was the one where we... It, <laughs> it was the one where we yelled at the kids in the pool. Oh, where was that? Was that in Nashville? <laughs> it, was, it must have been Nashville. I think it was Nashville. Holman was at this show with us because Holman oh. was in the hot tub with us. All right. So, so- it was Houston. Yes, it was Houston. You're right. Yeah, because that, sh- that Houston show wasn't that great overall, but we had f- a lot of fun, you know. And yeah, that, it was and like I, a good party show. Yeah, because I remember like that this year, that was one that they cut Portland and they cut Houston this year for for like Marco and Stern doing shows together of 2020. Those were the two that got removed from the schedule for this year. And I didn't yeah. care about the And Nashville did too. And Nashville, like I actually fully agreed, like we should never do this show again. And yeah, then, and the then the food and, was awesome. Yeah, the food was that that Monell's place was absolutely worth the whole trip. But but yeah, it wasn't worth the company's money to have us go there to like almost no crowd, you know. Yeah, so, and then uh, Portland is of the three is the only one I was genuinely upset, and that was selfish because my friend Bill Dabblestein lives there, and my friend Aubrey was living out that way. So it's like mm. I got to see friends that lived there while I was in yeah. town. Plus it was a, a good record shopping town. And like, it was just a, I, I just enjoyed that show. You know, it was a cool sure. show. That's one that, that I'm, uh, I'm sad to say I've never, I've never had the pleasure of going to because uh, I know that Kyle and, and Midge, uh, Steve Midge, he, they both just rave about Portland and how it's such a fun show. And I'm, I'm sad that I never got to experience it. Yeah. Like our booth was real small and pinball was such a small thing at that show it was more of a game video game and console type of show but yeah you know all types of games were represented and it just had a great vibe it had like a good atmosphere like the crowd was really good you know just genuinely pretty friendly people they were just of all different spices of life you know like yeah all, all genders and races it was very one of the most diverse audiences i've ever seen at a game show that sounds like honestly the dream yeah i mean it was like it was it was like refreshing is like to see just like wow there's a lot of ladies here there's like transgender people people of all races it was just well this is awesome it's not just a bunch of white dudes you know yeah and i'm a white you know what i mean it was just like yeah i I like seeing diverse diversity especially i like seeing a lot of of female people because games have been such a sausage fest for the entire existence of them that i like seeing women get into games more Yep. And thank God for shit like Bells and Chimes to... Uh, to... God, when, when I first heard about, like, there was, like, at this women's pinball league, Bells and Chimes, I thought it was the coolest idea ever. Oh. I'm, I'm like, God, you... that, that's brilliant, because, like, there should be a women's pinball league. Like, they, women should be playing this. Like, it's fun for everyone. You don't have to be a dude to enjoy this stuff. Yeah. 
Did, uh, did I tell, I guess I probably, we haven't really spoken a whole lot, but, uh, you know, I'm starting the Columbia chapter of Bells down here. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, when things yeah, are, yeah. When you can when actually go normal. places and play. <laughs> yeah. Um, but talking to a local place, a couple of local places and, and we're talking about getting it underway when we can. There isn't a huge competitive scene in Columbia uh-huh. or in South Carolina in general. Yeah, there's a there's a league upstate called Fellowship of the Silver Ball, and it's basically just three locations, uh, and they're all <laughs> they're all like bar like old country houses, and everybody who owns like everyone whose collections we go to are basically have horse farms. Oh wow! It's very they're really, really nice people. Like the whole lot of them are really sweet and and kind, but you know, no swearing, no drinking. You have to act on your best behavior, which of course you should, but you know what I mean? Just like, I I can't play games without swearing. Like that's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I get like the worst game Tourette's like when I, you know, I'm just like, it's just the most vulgar shit I can think of when I get mad at a game. (laughs) Same. Absolutely the same. It was tough for me, man. Like the first few months I was going to the tournaments, I was like, I'd start to swear and I would just be like, like I had to, had to stop myself. It was really rough. (laughs) Yeah. I can't do it. It's like, it's hard enough, like when I do those Jack Danger streams, to like not like I have to really bite my tongue if I don't play well. Yeah. I can't like start spewing off those vile things like on a when I'm trying to represent the company, you know, and, and promote yeah. a game. So. Yeah, but it's I don't know, man. It's they're they're nice. I I like them a lot. It also takes like an hour and a half to get to any tournament. Um, Man, that's, not, that's way too much of a hike for me. Yeah, the points are the points are pretty good. So that was really the only reason that we were going like on the regular. But uh, obviously, they're not happening right now. All right, I have to go to bed now. Right, yeah, but you're an hour ahead of me too. So thank you for coming and talking to me. I know uh, it's kind of been a dry pinball season, obviously, but it's always like I mentioned, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, it's my pleasure, Crystal. Thank you for having me on. I was honored that you asked me to do this. Like, and I'll happily come back anytime. So that was Mike. I hope you all liked him as much as I do. You can uh, check out all of his record collection misadventures on Instagram on the punk vault. And uh, you should definitely go and see him. If you're ever at shows, Uh, check out his seminars where he talks about working for Stern and what it's like to be on the software team. And uh, yeah, you can probably find his photography online too somewhere. He does a lot of like, punk and I believe wrestling wrestling photography Uh, it's some pretty good stuff so yeah that's it for me tonight folks look for me next week I think I'm gonna try and stay on this stay on this wagon this coming off hiatus wagon got a couple of guests lined up and I'm excited about it you can see me on Instagram in the meantime it's the plum pinball the plum pinball (laughs) and uh, I'm also on Twitter and and all that good stuff so uh, so look for me there oh yeah and uh, make sure to to take a look for that episode the crossover episode of me and Lauren Gray I was on Lauren Gray's podcast where we talk about we talk about deep root so check it out oh and while I'm at it I want to send a special shout out to Lauren for helping me uh, with a rather minor editing fiasco she she really lent a hand uh so thank you lauren for that special shout out to you i still have a little bit to learn about the world of audacity and and editing podcasts so it's been a a wild ride so well that's all i have for tonight so until next time